0: Good morning. I haven't been up here for about a month now, so it's—I um, would say—exciting. Actually, the emotion that hit me first this morning was humility. I just the 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 privilege that it is for me to get to be up here to open up God's word to teach uh, to see people whom I love and care about deeply and long to see God do deep work in your lives. To be back up here uh, is a joy for me. So. Uh, thank you for allowing me the privilege of doing that on a regular basis. Um, thank you also for allowing me the privilege of not doing that. The last three weeks, that was actually really helpful. Uh, and we're blessed as a church community to have people like Will Kenny and our elders from Philadelphia, Steve Huber and John Alexander, come out and teach from us. Um, really, I'm grateful that you can show up at Liberty Church any day, hear the Word of God clearly, faithfully, humbly, hopefully accessibly uh, preached from from up here. So thank you for the time to step away. And um, for those of you who don't know, we had our, our second daughter was born two weeks ago today. Um, so Father's Day has got another level uh, of meaning for, uh, for me uh, this, uh, this year. Um, and Shay and, and Emmy are still uh, a home. They hopefully will make their Liberty Church debut uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. So they're excited to be here back with you guys. Uh, if you have Bibles... Uh, We're in Daniel chapter 6 today. You can go ahead and make your way there. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that uh, Kayla mentioned uh, under your seat, uh, that's page 743 is where we'll be. Go ahead and turn that direction. Uh, A few years back, actually a bunch of years back now, there was a student at Wheaton College who was contemplating the future and what it would look like to live her life faithfully to Jesus for the duration, and the result of this, these days, weeks, I don't know how long it was of contemplating that, the result of that was a short poem, and I want to read that poem for you this morning. It goes like this. Perhaps some future day, Lord, thy strong hand will lead me to the place where I must stand utterly alone, alone, O gracious lover, but for thee. I shall be satisfied if I can see Jesus only. I do not know thy plan for years to come. My spirit finds its, in thee its perfect home, sufficiency. Lord, all my desire is before thee now. Lead on no matter where, no matter how, I trust in thee. That student's name was Elizabeth Howard and soon after became Elizabeth Elliot. You heard Will reference her earlier this morning. She uh, died... This past Monday at the age of 88, after what I consider to be a truly unbelievable life. Unbelievable life. And that poem that she wrote when she was a student at Wheaton College really turned out to be prophetic about her life. Perhaps you're familiar with her, perhaps you're not. Will shared a little bit of her story with us this morning. But to encounter her life, it becomes immediately obvious that she was a woman of incredible courage. Courage. So Elizabeth Elliott is most famously known, as well mentioned, as the wife of Jim Elliott, who along with four other missionaries were killed uh, in in the jungles of eastern Ecuador in 1956 by a tribe of native Ecuadorians called the Auka or the Wayodani uh, tribe. Elizabeth, a couple years after that, wrote a book about this called Through the Gates of Splendor. Um, she actually not as well-known about her. She wrote, I think it was 24 or 25 books over the course of the rest of her life, but that's the one that kind of her story and her, her uh, authorship of that book is what kind of made her known in the, in the world at large. And that story was actually retold a couple years ago in a movie called The End of the Spear, in 2006, if you've seen that movie. What gets overlooked often, or can get overlooked about her life, is that when Jim Elliott and those other four men were killed, Elizabeth Elliot actually stayed. She stayed there. She didn't return home as you might expect somebody would, as might even be wise to do in that moment, but instead with her 10-month-old daughter, she stayed in the jungles of Ecuador, continued seeking to make contact with, to share the gospel with, to serve the very tribe of people who killed her husband and her four close friends. And The rest of her life from there was no walk in the park either. Uh, Several years after that, after serving amongst that tribe, she returned back to the United States. As Will mentioned, she remarried another man named Addison Leach. He died a mere four years after that. So she lost not just one husband, but two husbands. And then the last decade of her life, these last ten years leading up to Monday when she passed away, were incredibly difficult for her as she suffered from dementia. And if any of you are familiar with that disease, have had loved ones affected by the disease, it's a terrible disease. You get to watch your personality fade away, the slow decay of your personality. So Elizabeth Elliot stands as an example of immense courage. It takes really deep courage, a courage that you and I, most of us, will never know, to do what Jim Elliot and those other four men did, to risk your life for the sake of helping someone else understand the good news of Jesus. But I think in many ways it actually takes even deeper courage to do what Elizabeth Elliot did and to go on living and to stay particularly amongst the people who have done something so evil against you. And to not only do that, but to do it with a heart full of love and a heart full of compassion for the people who have done such a thing. And then to experience the loss of another husband and to experience the loss of your mental faculties and your personality. Just like she wrote in that poem... Her only hope when she stood in those moments utterly alone was that the presence of God was with her. And she lived that out all the way till Monday when she died. So it's fitting that we have the opportunity to think about her as an example and think about her life in the same week that we're looking at Daniel chapter 6. And we're talking about courage from Daniel chapter 6. Because just like Elizabeth Elliot's life, the book of Daniel teaches us that courage is not just about these one or two significant moments in your life where your faith is tested. Rather, it's about how you live your life in the years leading up to that moment and then the years on the other side of that moment, if you have them. Especially when you have to go on living in spite of the hostility, in spite of the heartbreak, in spite of the tragedy. So there's courage to die, absolutely it takes courage to die, but also, long before that, and in many cases long after that, courage to live. So we're in Daniel 6... It's a very well-known account, probably almost all of you have heard of this or read it many times in your life, Daniel and the Lion's Den. we're going to read the first uh, 24 verses of Daniel chapter 6, so you can follow along with me as I read. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, all the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near And said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was very much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions." The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, that they, may, that they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we look to you this morning to teach us from your word, to show us an example, a picture of what courage looks like, particularly the kind of courage to trust in you, to be devoted to you. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, Lord, if we come in and we feel confident and we feel courageous, would you remind us that we're able to do that because of who you are, we stand on you. If we come and we're weak, we don't feel like we've got any courage at all, pray that you would show us in your word and you'd work in our hearts by your spirit to show us why we have great reason to be courageous and our hope. Strengthen us, we pray, as we, as we learn, as we listen this morning. We pray that in your name. Amen. So courage is, is one of these words that can be used in all kinds of, of ways in our language, so much so that like in time it can begin to have no meaning at all. So I want to talk about really a distinct kind of courage this morning, one that pertains specifically to the people of God. You know, the people of God don't have like, um, like a monopoly on the market of courage. There's other kinds of courage, but the kind of courage I want to talk about today, I'll define this way: courage is devotion to God in spite of the circumstances or the pressures that would pry you away. Courage is devotion to God in spite of the circumstances or pressures that would pry you away. And in Daniel 6, we actually see three different characteristics of this kind of courageous devotion. So courage is public devotion, courage is consistent devotion, and courage is confident devotion. It's public, it's consistent, and it's confident. So let's work our way through those. First, courage is public devotion. It takes courage... To be known, does it not? It takes courage to be known. That's true in all kinds of relationships. That's true in our relationships with each other. It's risky to be vulnerable with other people. It's risky to allow other people to know who you really are, to know what you are really like. It takes courage not to pretend, it takes courage not to perform. to to try to live up to some kind of standard that either you have imposed on yourself or you think others have imposed on you or others really have imposed on you. It takes courage to not cover up what's really true about you. We went all the way back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden and man and woman fall into sin. They rebel against God. What's the first thing they do after that? What's the first thing they do? They hide. They hide, right? They hide. And ever since then... We've become expert, experts at hiding. People are experts at hiding. We hide from God. We hide from one another. We hide from the people in the world that we're called to love and serve and be among. That's true in all kinds of ways. It's especially true, though, when it comes to our devotion to God. I think for most people, the reality that God would call us to be public about our faith to share our faith with other people, to, as Jesus says, to let our light shine before all people. I think that ranks right up there with like public speaking as the things that like inspire the most fear in people. I think many of us are terrified about the idea that we're supposed to be that public with our faith. It would be a lot more comfortable, it would be a lot easier if our devotion to God was a private matter, not a public matter. But courage is actually public devotion. That's a part of what courage is. It's being known for your devotion to God regardless of the consequences. And Daniel's life illustrates this, and it illustrates it long before the lion's den. From the moment that he is taken into exile in Babylon, Daniel outs himself as someone who is devoted to his God above any other allegiance. From the first day and week that he's there, that's known about him. And we see that again here in Daniel chapter 6, specifically in the trap that is laid for Daniel by these other leaders. So this new king, Darius, he set up the government with 120 satraps. Those are um, leaders of smaller geographical provinces in the kingdom. And he does that, as it says, so that he might suffer no loss. Okay, At least part of what they're talking about when they say suffer no loss is monetary. These 120 provinces would pay taxes, they'd pay tribute to the king. And just like in today's world, Whenever money's involved and there are political and legal ramifications, there's a huge opportunity for corruption. It's a huge opportunity for corruption in those places. It wasn't all that uncommon that these leaders would take a little bit off the top for themselves, charge more than they needed to, things like that. But Daniel isn't corrupt. So in addition to jealousy that he's like had this meteoric rise to the, to the leadership role of another kingdom, not just Babylon, but now the Medo-Persian kingdom... In addition to the jealousy about that, these other leaders hate Daniel because they can't find any fault in him. They can't dig up any dirt on the guy. Imagine that, a politician at the top of a kingdom, you can't dig up any dirt on the guy. He doesn't even do the acceptable wrong things, like skim a little bit off the top for himself. So if they're going to take him down, like it says in verse 5, it's going to have to be in connection with the law of his God. And that is a, don't just gloss over that statement, that's a, that's a huge statement about Daniel's life and about Daniel's character. It means that it is publicly known among the highest leaders of this kingdom that the absolute, you know, the non-negotiable in Daniel's life is devotion to his God. It's so absolute, it's so non-negotiable that it's the one thing these other leaders can set their trap about and be 100% confident that it's going to work. So the question for us is this. Are we known publicly for our devotion to God like Daniel was? Are we known publicly for our devotion to God? As we long for other people to understand who Jesus is, to understand the good news of Jesus, as we pursue relationships with people, I've often heard in conversation and even said myself, you know, so-and-so, well, they know I'm a Christian. You know, we've had a conversation, especially for me, I'm a pastor. It's kind of hard to hide that fact that, you know, probably if I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. So they know, that person knows that I'm a Christian. But do they know that I'm a Christian? Or do they know that the most absolute non-negotiable thing about me is my devotion to God? Because I don't think there's not supposed to be a difference between those things. But I think in reality, there almost always is, at least in the perception that other people have. In our culture, that someone's a Christian could mean a whole spectrum of things, or not. So there's at least in perception a difference between those things. Daniel's devotion here is known. We never in the course of his life in Babylon, in exile, we never see him shy away from it. But just as important that we see here, nor do we see him flaunt it. Nor do we see him flaunt it. And I think that's a really fantastic paradigm for us to learn from. Courageous public devotion is neither arrogant nor ashamed. It's neither arrogant nor ashamed. Simple illustration from a scenario that every single one of us has had to deal with probably multiple times in our life. When you go out to eat somewhere, do you pray for your meal or don't you? How do you handle that? How do you handle that? Well, if you're prone to being ashamed, right? if you kind of lean toward that end of the spectrum, you'll never pray in public. Or if you do, it's about a half a second and you make sure that you do it where no one else notices. So you know what I'm talking about? Like that you never would do it like when the waiter or waitress is like refilling drinks. That's like the wrong moment to pray, because they might come back and it'd be a really awkward moment then for everybody. So if you're gonna do it, you wait till like after the meal order is put in, and you know they're not coming back for like at least twenty minutes, you got some time, then you can get your prayer in at that point. But if you're arrogant, on the other hand, if you like to, to flaunt your faith then you make sure you go out of your way to make sure other people around you hear it. You know, maybe you pull out the guitar and you sing rounds of a song before the prayer. I don't know what you do. If you lean toward that end, maybe something like that. But public devotion isn't either of those things. Public devotion is just doing what you normally do. Just, Just do what you normally do. We thank God for his provision in private. Why not thank God for his provision in public? That's who we are. That's what we're about as his people. So we don't run from our normal practices, but nor do we shove them in the face of other people. We just do them. We just do them. To not do that is actually to compromise our own integrity. It's to begin a slippery slope of living a duplicitous life where we're this way with one group of people and we're this way with another group of people. And that idea leads us really to the second characteristic we see here of this distinct kind of courage in Daniel 6. Not only is it public devotion, it's consistent devotion. Consistent devotion. So if you've been with us in this series in Daniel, we've seen that the reason that God's people can thrive in exile is because God gives his people favor to do so. He gives people favor in the midst of exile. So this paradigm for who we are as the people of God, we have a home, You know, we have this perfect, eternal relationship with God. That's our true home, so this is not our home. And yet, God calls us to specific places, makes that our place, and gives us favor to thrive in the midst of those places. There's a huge change that's happened here between the end of Daniel 5 and the beginning of Daniel 6. And that's that the Babylonian Empire, dominant world power for many years, has been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And King Darius is now reigning over that empire. But just like was true with the Babylonians, Daniel now has been in, in Babylon for a better part of 70 years at this point. Uh, just like with the Babylonians, he finds favor with the new king, with the new empire, almost immediately. Darius, Darius recognizes his value, recognizes his wisdom, his ability, and it points him to this high position of leadership. But that kind of favor from governments or leaders or whatever it might come from, it's not ever a given. It's not something that we are meant to, as the people of God, ever take for granted if we have it, because it can disappear and reappear in a second. And genuine courage means that our devotion to God remains consistent regardless. See, courage that that is dependent on circumstance isn't really courage. Courage. Courage that's dependent on circumstance isn't really courage. And as Daniel learns here, even favor with the top dog, you know, the king of an empire. He doesn't have like a parliament or a democracy to like push rules and laws through. He's a a tyrant. He's a dictator. Even with favor from that person, can't serve as a substitute for courage. Not thinking through all the implications of what he's doing, Darius signs this this injunction into law, and essentially becomes a death sentence for Daniel. And he immediately regrets it when he finds out that that's going to be the case. It says he even tries to, to go to work to somehow free Daniel from that. It's one of his most trusted, best leaders in the kingdom. He wants him to not die. But to do that, especially as a new king, would be to lose face in front of his new kingdom, to go back on his word. He wouldn't be trusted again. He wouldn't be respected Anymore, So he doesn't intervene. But here's what I love. Look at verse 10. Look at Daniel 6, verse 10. Daniel hears that this new injunction has become law. It's a law that's certainly going to bring his condemnation. What does he do? He does the same exact thing that he did the day before. He does the same exact thing he did the day before. Undeterred, he goes to his house And he gets down on his knees and he prays three times a day. And it says, as was his practice, as the thing that he already had been doing in his life. So Daniel does that the one day when he has the full favor of the kingdom behind him, and he does the same exact thing the next day when he's the enemy of the state. See, for Daniel, it's consistent devotion because it's practiced. It's part of the rhythms of his life. He pursues this relationship with his God. He pursues the worship of his God all the time. And so it makes sense that his prayer and his communion with God would stay consistent even when everything else around him is not. See, what changes in Daniel chapter 6? Not Daniel. Not Daniel. The circumstances change. Daniel's devotion is consistent. You and I, I think, have a dangerous tendency to kid ourselves into thinking that we'll rise to meet the challenge when they come and kind of defer thinking about that until it comes. You know, we, we can have this dangerous tendency to think, well, when a moment comes that calls for courage, I'll have courage, and maybe you will. But also, maybe you won't. A couple years ago, a friend of mine was at work. Uh, one of his coworkers was eating something, I don't remember what, and she began to choke uh, on whatever she was eating. Now, up until that point... Uh, my friend would have confidently said he knew exactly what to do in that moment. He like knew what the Heimlich maneuver was. He knew like the, war- the universal warning signs for choking. He was a helpful, kind. He is a helpful, kind guy. Um, would have said without a second's hesitation that he would know exactly what to do. But when that moment actually came, when his coworker was actually choking, what happened? He froze. Froze up, and I mean like glued to his spot. Froze. He was the closest to her in proximity, and he couldn't move. Now, thankfully, somebody else in the office did and got there, did the Heimlich, and and she's fine. But the point is, maybe courage will be there when you need it, and maybe it won't. Now, the the Heimlich maneuver is probably not part of your daily rhythms. Uh, If it is, you have a far more interesting life than I do, but... But devotion to God is something that we can make part of our daily rhythms and our practice today, regardless of what our circumstances are right now. And if we're already pursuing this kind of life devoted to God, it makes it that much more likely that that devotion is going to be there when it's hard, when it's costly, when the stakes are raised, when the circumstances change, when the favor of a person or a group of people or an entire society as a whole disappears or shifts violently. So how do you hope to respond if your devotion to God is tested like Daniel's was here? How do you hope to respond? Because I think the real question then becomes, what does it look like to begin living that way now? What's it look like to begin living that way now? And if there's a gap between those two things, why is that gap there? Why is that there? Courage isn't just about the big lion's den moments of life. For Daniel, the lion's den is really just the culmination of decades of day-to-day decisions and public, consistent devotion to God. So really for us, regardless if if we ever have a lion's den moment or not, the the place that courage is cultivated, the place that courage is demonstrated is in day-to-day life, day-to-day relationships, day-to-day rhythms. So courage is public devotion. It's consistent devotion. Lastly, Courage is confident devotion. Daniel's cast into the lion's den. He's sealed in there for the entire night. And as this story, as this narrative builds, this climactic moment, something completely unexpected happens here. And it's that King Darius has a far worse night than Daniel does. He has a far worse night than Daniel does. Now, unless you're already familiar with this story, you would never see that coming. You would never see that coming. The guy in the luxury and the comfort and the safety of a palace, the king of an empire, has a worse night than the guy locked in a pit with alpha predators. Unlike, uh, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. With them, we actually get to hear them talk a little bit before they're cast into the fiery furnace. Here, we don't, get, we don't have any record of Daniel saying anything at all before he's cast into the, the, the lion's den. But the implication from this text is that he doesn't doesn't seem nervous or anxious. He's calm. He's unfazed. When he finally does speak the one line he has in the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 6, he speaks the next morning. He's not even surprised that God has rescued him. He's not angry. He's not arrogant. He even honors the guy who signed the law that put him in the lion's den overnight. The first thing out of his mouth Live forever, O king. Okay, that would not be the first thing out of my mouth in that moment. Daniel here is at peace. And on the other hand, the whole night Darius hasn't slept. He hasn't eaten. Why is Daniel so confident when Darius is so anxious and fearful? It's for the same exact reason that the lions don't touch Daniel that night. The end of verse 23, because he trusted in his God. Because he trusted in his God. Courage is confident devotion. Confident of what? Well, confident that God is in control. Confident that God is good. Confident that God knows what he's doing. Courage has everything to do with trust. And so the question is, do we trust God or don't we? Most of us in the room would say we do trust God. Most of us in the room do trust God. But does that trust work its way out into our day-to-day lives and the way that we live? Because our courage is tied not to whether we say we trust God or not. Our actual courage in the moment is tied to whether we functionally believe that. Whether we have a deep and practical trust that God is good, that God is in control, that God knows what he's doing. And what we see here in the contrast of Darius and Daniel is that fear and anxiety belong to people who don't trust God not to the people who do. That's who fear and anxiety is for. It's for the people who don't trust God, not the people who do. So even when Daniel is in this infinitely more precarious position, he's the one at peace. Darius is not. Now, it's so important for us to to wrestle with and think about all of this today because I think, along with people far smarter than I, that we are experiencing a shift in Western culture It's going to create an even deeper need for courage among the people of God. At the beginning of this month, there was an Australian pastor named Steve McAlpine, and he wrote a great article about what he calls Stage 2 Exile. Stage 2 Exile. Here's the big idea. Um, Christianity, over the last decades, has lost uh, much of its position of influence in the mainstream. Okay, but actually, that's old news. It's really old news. It's been happening for a long time. Some of us are just really slow to accept that. We try to still use channels of power to communicate the gospel when we've really lost that opportunity, lost that influence in many places. That's what McAlpine describes as stage one exile. And it's primarily characterized by marginalization. Christians get marginalized in a stage one exile type situation. Stage two, he says, is what Christianity in the West is now entering or at least approaching rapidly. And it's where the mainstream shifts away from marginalizing Christians and instead takes a posture of outright hostility to them. See, when you're marginalized, people are apathetic. They don't care. So you have to fight for a voice. But what Steve McAlpine says here is that Christianity now today is actually being brought back into the public square very often, but not brought back into the public square as like a valid, reasonable option. It's being brought back into the public square to be tarred and feathered. Here's what he says. In the last five or six years, the culture, read elite framework that drives the culture, is increasingly interested in bringing the church back into the public square. Yes, you heard that right. But not in order to hear it, but rather in order to flay it, to expose its real and alleged abuses, and to render it naked and shivering before a jeering crowd. It is officials conspiring with the king to show that Daniel's act of praying toward Jerusalem three times per day is not simply an archaic and foolish hope, but a very real threat to the order of society and the new moral order that will hold it together. Are you following along with him there? Were you tracking with him there? That in stage two exile, Christianity is brought back into the public square. It's talked about a lot more, but not in a cordial way say, actually, if you believe these things, this is where that leads. Try to discount the Christian faith. And he goes on to say that where stage one exile and this marginalization calls primarily for humility, trying to find a voice but being humble about it, he says stage two exile and hostility is going to call for something else. What is that? He says courage. Courage. And this is why Daniel is such a helpful and good picture for us. Where's Daniel? He's not in an apathetic, marginalized position. He's in Babylon. He's in a hostile environment. And he's there for his entire adult life. And it's there from within the hostility that he practices and continues this public and this consistent and this confident devotion to God. He doesn't start a war. He doesn't become radicalized. But nor does he hide out and shy away from it. Hostility from the world isn't a valid reason to abandon trust in God, to allow our lives to be driven by fear and anxiety. Like, no doubt in the room, when you hear something of this magnitude, like a cultural shift where Christianity might experience hostility rather than just marginalization in the years to come, I would be shocked if most of us in the room weren't a little bit fearful and anxious about that. It's going to happen. We're going to be fearful. We're going to be anxious. But Daniel 6 shows us that fear and anxiety, even in those moments... Fear and anxiety are for those who don't trust God, not for those who do. So we fight the temptation to be driven by fear, to be characterized by fear in the midst of whatever happens, cultural shifts or or otherwise. We pursue courage. We pursue this public devotion, neither arrogant nor ashamed. We pursue consistency with our devotion. We're confident in our devotion that God's in control, that he was... Is as in control of this, of our lives, as he was of the lion's mouth for Daniel. Of course, the problem with that, and maybe you feel this very acutely right now, the problem with that is that we are ashamed. We are arrogant. We're not consistent. At least I'm not. We're not confident, at least not all the time. We're not courageous, at least not in the way that we're going to need to be. So, is this even possible? What's our hope? Our hope is that the God that we are devoted to has already been courageous for us. So 500 years after Daniel, Jesus Christ publicly, consistently, confidently, it says in the Gospel of Mark, sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem to be delivered over to his own death. And in what looks like this moment, where a far more dangerous lion, as the Apostle Peter will later refer to him, Satan, the great adversary of our souls, in a moment where it looks like Satan will feast on and triumph over the people of God, his mouth is shut once and for all by the substitutionary sufferings, by the victorious resurrection of the Son of God. So don't try to muster this courage on your own because it's not there. It's not there. It's not in you, in and of yourself. Instead, as the author of Hebrews says, consider him. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition, such hostility from sinners, that you might not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus has endured the cross. He has scorned its shame. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. It says that he will never leave us or forsake us. And it's by his courage that he has purchased freedom in which you and I might actually live courageously. So as we come to this table this morning, let's consider the courage of Jesus that is pictured there. In him, may we be met and strengthened. May we be forgiven. May we be sent with hearts renewed and refilled with courageous devotion. Because truly, there is no safer place to be than in Christ, and there is no greater source of courage than His finished work. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we rejoice in your courage on our behalf. You who left the security and the safety of heaven and came to earth and by your blood bought freedom for us that we might actually live courageously in the face of whatever would come our way. God, we admit that we are weak. We admit that we are not consistent, that we are not confident, that we would rather hide out and be ashamed or we overcompensate and try to be arrogant. God, we are desperate for you to give us the courage that we need to live this life well and in a way that honors you, in a way that truly serves the good of the people you have placed us amongst. We long to do that. And so this week, like every week, we come to this table to be strengthened and sent to do that again. We can only have courage because you have been courageous for us. And thank you for the courage that you instill in your people and the examples we have of that, particularly in people like Elizabeth Elliot, people like Daniel. Give us more examples. May we be those kind of examples. And as we come to this table this morning, renew and refill our hearts with courage and devotion for you. Let we pray that in your name. Amen.